All right, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. So uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed and you can head right out over there with Miss Heather. Um, youth group, I know you're looking forward to this, but you're in with us this morning. Bless your hearts, we're awfully glad to hear you. I do love the first Sunday. They may not love the first Sunday of every month, but I love the first Sunday of every month. I love having our youth team uh, leading us. I love the fact that our youth team is growing. Uh, I love the youth participating in the service. And let me tell you, after the Prue boys have read from the Old and the New Testament, what more do we need for the morning? Amen to that? Hey, hallelujah. What's that? <laughs> when Tobias opened the service in prayer, I thought he was, when he prayed for Pastor Bill's message, I thought he was going to pray that it would go quickly. But he, he didn't pray that, bless his heart. So we're going to be this morning in Joshua chapter 12, and uh, it's a chapter that I didn't quite know what to expect, but I have to say I'm awfully uh, excited about it now that we're going to dive uh, into it. I do want to say just two quick things before we do. First of all, uh, as Susie said, Easter is coming up right around the corner. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which means that the Sunday after that is Easter Sunday. And we're super excited about Easter Sunday, of course, because it's Resurrection Day. Um, but as well, we're doing baptisms as part of the service, right at the end of the service, out on the front patio. We've already got a handful of uh, some of the kids that are interested in being baptized, and that's super exciting in and of itself. Um, but if you're not a kid, and you're a believer, and you've yet to be baptized, what in the world are you waiting for? And what better morning to be baptized really than Easter Sunday? So if you're interested in that, um, please talk to one of us afterward. You could talk to one of the prayer counselors. You can grab me or grab one of the other pastors or tell anybody, I want to be baptized. And we'll make sure to get you um, sort of put on the list and prepared uh, to do that. The only requirement to be baptized, we don't have eight weeks of classes. The only requirement to be baptized is that you're born again. And if you're not born again, we can take care of that uh, as well. Um, the second thing I want to mention is thank you so much for all of your, uh, your generosity over and above your normal monthly giving, just in, your, in the way that this church body has come out in support of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm especially, as, did I say especially? Wow. I'm especially excited to announce, um, and I'll probably be in trouble for announcing this, but um, Jana's mom, who we've been praying for, to get here into the country. Uh, we said a couple weeks ago is in the country and this morning she's actually here with us. And uh, so, yeah. So we're awfully excited to have her here. We continue, of course, to be in prayer for Vlad's mom and I think Vlad's sister who are still uh, in Ukraine, but we're awfully glad to have Jana's mom with us and uh, you can give her a hug afterward as you stay out on the patio for the, you like that segue, was that clever? I was told we had way too much food, so I'm, I'm counting on everybody staying. Anyway, Joshua 12, let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, his time, uh, this time in the word. So Father, we thank you for this morning, and Lord, we do thank you for all it is that you're doing here in our wonderful church family. Lord, the ways that you are uh, growing us and you're expanding the reach of this ministry. Father, we pray for... Um, all of those in our church family, whether they're here with us, Lord, or, or tuning in to us, Lord, from, uh, from somewhere else. Lord, we're thankful for uh, each person, Lord, that, uh, that calls this their church 
home. And so we pray that you'd bless our time this morning, Lord, as we go to your word. Uh, and we ask, Lord, as we do each and every week, Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, we're dependent upon that teaching ministry of the Spirit to illuminate your truths to us. And so we, we pray for that now, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Joshua chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles here for you, and you can just raise your hands, and somebody will bring a Bible to you. Of course, you can use a Bible on your phone as long as you're not checking Facebook during the service. So does anyone even check Facebook, Instagram, or whatever you're checking, or the sports book, or whatever it is? But. So last week, if you were here with us, uh, you remember we watched as the, the children of Israel sort of fought what we said was their biggest battle yet, right? In chapter 11, it was that northern campaign in the taking of the promised land. As yet, we saw another one of these confederations of Canaanite kings all united together to come against Israel. And of course, yet the Lord delivered this victory completely to the children of Israel as Joshua stepped out with his armies, stepped out you know, in faith in spite of his fear. And they fought courageously and they fought obediently. And then when we left off last time in what was our very last verse of chapter 11, in verse 23 it said that Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. And we noted that this one verse was both a, kind of a summation of everything we've seen before in the first 11 chapters of Joshua, where it says that Joshua took the whole land. Uh, but as well, it was kind of a preview of really what will be the bulk of the rest of the book, because chapters 13 through 24 deal primarily with Joshua giving that as an inheritance to Israel. But as you know, tucked right there between those two sections, so between chapter 11 and chapter 13, we have, you guessed it, chapter 12, right? And that's our text for today, which I will just tell you now, this is a text that most people skip as they survey and study through the book of Joshua. But we are not going to skip it this morning, amen? Amen. Because I actually think that it's an important text. It may not seem like an exciting text, at least maybe not to us and maybe not at first glance as you read through the text. This may have been one of those texts that you read this week in preparation for Sunday and you wondered what in the world is he going to do with this? And yet I, I hope that what you're going to see is that there's something for us here. There's something that I think we really need to consider and something that I really believe is going to be an encouragement to each of us as we just kind of work our way through it. Because what it is that chapter 12 does is it really puts a punctuation mark right at the end of those first 11 chapters so far. And what we're going to see is that that punctuation mark is an exclamation mark. Because chapter 12 emphasizes everything that the Lord has just done for Israel. It's a list of all of the Canaanite kings, 33 of them in all, 
who've been conquered by the children of Israel as we've watched them come into the promised land. And so we could even cleverly call this chapter a catalog of conquered Canaanite kings. Yes, with an exclamation mark at the end of it. And that catalog begins right here in verse 1 as we read that these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. So this inspired record of these defeated kings actually begins with the kings they defeated on the other side, the eastern side, right, the side toward the rising of the sun of the Jordan River. So before they actually even crossed over into the promised land. So this begins with these conquered eastern kings. And these kings controlled a big piece of land. So the river Arnon that it mentions there kind of descends into the Dead Sea about halfway down on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And of course, Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon is 130 miles to the north of that. And so the point is that the entire sort of what we would call the Transjordan area, right? Everything from north to south now lay very safely in the hands of Israel. It's what we would know today as the nation of Jordan, right? It was controlled in Joshua's time, their text tells us next, by just two kings. Look at what it says in verses two through five. It says, one king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites, and the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Shinaroth, as far as the Sea of Arba, the Salt Sea, on the road to Jesimoth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og, king of Vashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Astaroth at Edrei, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, over Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. So, Mixed right in there, right, with all of that geography and all of those names, which we can hardly pronounce, there's two names which should sound at least a little bit familiar. First of all, Sihon, king of the Amorites, right, in the south, right, this is this king who ruled over this stretch of about 90 miles worth of land from south to north, from about the midpoint there of the Dead Sea, or the Sea of Arba, right, the Salt Sea, all of it a reference to the Dead Sea, and he ruled right all the way up to about the Sea of Galilee, right, the Sea of Shinaroth. So we have him, then we have Og, the king of Bashan in the north, who ruled about the next 60 miles that ran straight upward from that point. Now, if you don't remember these battles taking place in this book under Joshua here, don't worry about it because you didn't actually miss them. Because what we're told in verse 6 
is that these Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. So these first two kings and the description of their territories take us all the way back to that victory that God gave Moses all the way back in Numbers chapter 21. So the conquered eastern kings are actually the conquered kings of Moses. And yet they're included here as part of the victory of them taking all that God had promised to them, right? This was all part of the land. This was the part that was given to that two and a half tribes who settled there on the east side of the Jordan. We've talked before and we're going to talk again about whether they were right or wrong to have settled there. Talked about the fact that Moses gave this land to them as a kind of a concession. And we're going to see some of the consequences that are going to come as a result of this. But for this morning, it's important for the official record here to remind everyone that Israel was a single kingdom, right? That all who lived there, even east of the Jordan, they were as much a part of the kingdom of Israel as those who inhabited the promised land proper, right? Both sides were equally Israel. And if it seems like all these kind of geographical details read a little bit like a real estate document, that's by design. First of all, at least in part, because that's exactly what this is, practically speaking. And I hope you're okay with these kinds of lists because we're going to see more of them as we finish up this book. Because this was the record of what is the rightful possession of God's people as given to them by God himself. Right? This is real land with real boundaries. And what we see is that all of these boundaries, all throughout the chapter, almost exactly follow the description of the very same territory that would someday be given to them when it was described for them 40 years earlier, back at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. And so the point, not just practically, but even more so the point, spiritually speaking, is that the Lord had been absolutely faithful to provide them with everything that he had promised to them. And he did it, I love the, one, the way that one author put it, that the Lord did it right down to every last village or town and every last border, passing atop this hill over here and descending through that valley over there. Right? These are all these promises that God had made first to Abraham right? and then confirmed to Isaac and to Jacob. These are these promises that the Jews had now waited for over 700 years to be fulfilled. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's worth at least pausing to consider. And I think that that's precisely why the divine record pauses here for us to consider it because again imagine without this chapter we'd be rushing right from the big battle of chapter 11 right to the distribution of the land in chapter 13 but what the holy spirit has done is he's provided the, us with this sort of a, a selah remember that word from the psalms which simply means what selah means stop 
and really give this some thought. Right, Sihon and Og, these are the first two of ultimately 33 different kings that are gonna be listed in this chapter. And each and every one of them is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Each and every one of them represents a battle that was fought and a battle that was won by God's people through God's strength. And each name would have been a reason to rejoice every time they heard it. Remember that for most of their history, for centuries after this was written, people would have heard the Bible, they wouldn't have been able to read it, right? But they would have heard it read to them at the synagogue and then at the temple on the Sabbath. They would have heard it read to them on the feast days. And as they did, they would have heard this listing of these conquered kings of Canaan and each time that they heard this list, it was a list of God's grace and it was a list of God's faithfulness in their lives. It was a list of the fact that God had promised to them that he would give them this land. He had promised to them that he would defeat their enemies just like Malachi read about. Right? And so to have this listing read out loud one by one as we're going to see in the rest of our text Imagine that the, the way that this would have sparked their memory and the way that it really would have quickened their hearts about these things which the Lord had done for them in the past. Which, in the case of these first two kings, the past would have been at least 10 years earlier, just at the time that this was written. And so often, you know, for us, I know it just seems like time keeps rolling and rolling, right? Especially as it relates to our Christian experience. And God will give us some great victory and then right away it seems like we're on to the next fight, right? We're right in the next battle, with the, the next victory or, or whatever the next thing is. And that's great because it means that we're continuing to press into the kingdom. But I absolutely believe that it's not a bad idea at all every five or every seven or maybe even 10 years to take just a moment and to sit down and write a list of those major things that God has accomplished in our lives. All of the different enemies that have been defeated, the great things that have happened in order that we can remember and that we can celebrate and we can really give praise to him for his faithfulness, even for those things that he did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever years ago. There's just something I think that's so wonderful about really getting to sit down and talk with someone who's been walking with the Lord for decades and decades. And I will tell you what's common amongst all of them is that each and every time you talk to one of them, they all say the same thing. And that is that the Lord has been absolutely faithful in their lives, all of their lives. Right through the ups and through the downs and in the big battles and in the little ones, they will tell you that God has shown himself to be nothing less than faithful to them. And as we each develop that kind of a history with him, we each would say the very same thing, like it says in 1 Kings 8, that there has not failed one word of his good promise. And I know that it, sometimes it's very hard to see in the midst of the battle but it always comes so clearly into perspective when we just get a little perspective. 
right? When we just take the time and we think back and we find, what we find is that some of the, those first big victories of 10 years ago, they were really giant victories. Because what I think is interesting about this list of 33 kings, Moses only has two, right? Joshua has 31, but the ones that Moses had were big ones, right? Look in verse 4 in particular, look back at verse 4, where it talks about Og, the king of Bashan and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Astaroth. So this is this powerful king who ruled over about 60 fortified cities, and he was also a huge man. Right? Og was a descendant of another tribe of giants, like the Anakim that we saw last time, but he's a, de a descendant of the Rephaim, or the Rephaites. And they were this group of giants, these very fierce fighters living in Canaan and the surrounding area during the time of Moses and Joshua. What's interesting is that that word Rephaites or Rephaim is not simply an ethnic, but it was also a descriptive term because what it literally means is the terrible ones. And King Og himself was one of the last of this race of these fierce, terrible giants. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 3, which is the record of the battle when this king was defeated along with his people, there's this really interesting detail that's provided there in the text. Talking about King Og, it says, Indeed his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width according to the standard cubit. Let me tell you, that's one big bed. Thirteen and a half feet long six feet wide, a big bed for a big guy, right? He, this guy would make Goliath look shrimpy at nine feet. Og was probably 13 feet tall. He was a fierce, you know, but the, even this fierce, formidable foe, he fell easily along with his sons on the very same day in this battle against the children of Israel. So despite his size and despite his strength, despite the relative inexperience of this newly freed nation of slaves, right? God gave Israel's army the victory and they took that entire land of Bashan. This was only their second battle in the history of them as a people after their exodus out of Egypt. And it was their very first lesson that there is no enemy too big for God to defeat. There's no force that's impossible for God to conquer. God doesn't quake, right, in the presence of giants, and his children shouldn't either. And here's what I think is really interesting, right, is think about this. These two victories here that are recorded as being under Moses, these were victories which had to happen just to get them positioned to get into the promised land. Right? And they were big ones. And I really think that for some of us, we can look back to a time in our Christian walk, probably long before we ever had any notion of entering into the spirit-filled life or of, of what it meant to take possession of God's promises. Right? We may not have even known at that point that there was a spirit-filled life. 
which we've talked about is that crossing over the Jordan. That's what that represents for us. It represents that moving from one level of our Christian experience to another kind of a, a spirit-filled, a spirit-empowered, a really spirit-led kind of living. But long before we even knew that existed, we can look back at our own experience with the Lord in our faith, and we can see some pretty big victories that God won on our behalf, perhaps right as or just after we came to him. Just after we came out of Egypt, right? Right when we were saved, or maybe during that period when we were still kind of wandering around in the wilderness, even after our salvation. But even then, there were victories, and some of them were probably big ones, right? Kings that were huge in our lives, but no longer then had power over our lives, or kings who stood there as these huge obstacles in front of us, right? And, and maybe it was some kind of an addiction or some sort of paralyzing pain that you have from the past, or maybe it was a, a tremendous weight or a burden that you'd been carrying for years and years. It could have been a, a besetting sin or some set of impossible circumstances that you were up against, right? Any kind of formidable enemy which is preventing us from moving forward, whatever it was for you in your life, I know that in my life, there were a couple of significant things, right? A couple of giant kings that the Lord gave me victory over almost immediately after I was saved. Things that I had battled for years and years before that. Years and years of defeat after defeat. These things also that were just looming in the way of my future and the fullness that God had in his highest for me. And then all of a sudden, complete victory. Almost as soon as I was born again. And it happened to the point where it caused me to just sit and say, wow, I guess this God thing is real. This whole God thing is undeniably real, where I said, Lord, your presence and your power in my life now are undeniably real. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There were plenty of other kings that the Lord decided he would leave in the land of my life. Okay? Other kings that, you know, I continue to battle, right? And Michelle can surely give you a list of all of those kings that are alive and well. But it was those initial victories, I think, over just those first couple of kings that really just propelled me forward into more victories. Because what they did is that they gave me the faith I needed to keep pressing into these promises that I was just discovering as I read the Bible for the first time. And I still look back at those first fallen kings as a source of strength during difficult times. And in fact, what we see about the victories over these two kings, over Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, these victories are so notable that we actually are going to continue to hear of those two specific victories all throughout the Old Testament. right? In eight different books, all the way up to the songs of Israel 450 years later. And of course, right into our lives this morning. Right? Psalm 136 is that beautiful psalm. It's that psalm of, that psalm of thanksgiving to God 
because his mercies endure forever. And part of that praise, it reads this, it says, to him who struck down great kings for his mercy endures forever and slew famous kings for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. So these victories became a part, if you will, of the popular culture of the children of Israel. They were a reason to rejoice. And so let's be sure as we look at our own history that we are very faithful to give glory to God for his faithfulness, right? For those great giant kings that he defeated even years and years ago, right? Some of those 13-foot kind of kings, right? Those victories which then just propelled us on, you know, and, and now we still can look back at those as evidences of God's great mercy, right? Those things that really positioned us to start to conquer the rest of the kings. And so now as we, as we continue on in the text, we're going to start with that list, right? These 31, now these are the conquered kings of Joshua. Starting in verse 7, it says that these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. Once again, we've got this geographical detail, the boundaries from the north to the south, from Mount Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, right? Of course, that's north. It's right on the slopes of Mount Hermon, right there at the source of the Jordan River, all the way down the length of the land, beyond the bottom of the Dead Sea, southwest of that into what's called the Wilderness of Zin, right? That's where Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir are. So all of the land, right? All of the promised land, it was a land, as we read in verse 8, in the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So it was a land of varying landscape. It was also a land of varying peoples, and all of it given to Israel according to the promises of God. Now we've talked briefly as we started this book, the promised land is an area of land like no other land on earth. It's a beautiful piece of land. It's the most beautiful part of the land in that part of the world. The whole promised land is about the same size as New Jersey, but we've said before it's not unlike a mini California. It's got these forests in the north, this desert in the south, this beautiful coastline, of course, that runs all the way along the west, and this very fertile valley that runs right down the middle of it. It's amazing because you have Mount Hermon in the north with a summit of 11,000 feet, and you've got people that ski up there for months out of the year on these beautiful snow-capped mountains, and all the way down then to these extreme deserts in the south near the Dead Sea, where the elevation drops to the lowest point on Earth at nearly 1,500 feet below sea level. It's just a two-hour drive 
right, where the temperatures down there can be 120 degrees on the very same day that people are skiing up in the north. And you've got areas with beautiful waterfalls, and you've got these lush forests, and then, of course, this Mediterranean coast, and this very fertile Jordan River Valley that runs nearly the length of the country, part of which today produces per acre more agriculture than any place on the face of the earth. It's remarkable and it's almost as though when the Lord took all of the beauty of his palette in his colors, in his different kinds, the very best of his creation, it's almost like he took all of that and he purposely put it together here in the land of Israel for his people to give to them and to bless them. And this land is a picture of exactly what it is he does in each one of our lives as well. God so wants to give us the best of the best, the best of the best that he's prepared for us from eternity past, right? As, as Peter tells us, those exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we might be partakers of the divine nature. Right? All of these precious promises that are as varied as the landscape of, these unique, of this unique land. It is such a remarkable place and hopefully soon we'll take a trip there as a church. Okay? This land is so remarkable in fact that as we've already seen, it was already inhabited by these seven different pagan people groups, right? The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites, who though Joshua doesn't mention here, he includes them in his final list in chapter 24 of people who were all judged by God because of their wickedness and had their land given by God to his chosen people. And I think the point of this list of peoples here is that there were lots of ites and lots of fights, but God was bigger than all of them. You know, each one of these different pagan peoples were dangerous in their different ways, right? Each were wicked and each were deadly to the spiritual well-being of God's chosen people. But this list of all of them reminds us that God can cleanse the land of all of them for the good of his people, just in the same way that he can cleanse our lives of them as well. Have you ever met an Amorite? Have you ever met a Perizzite? No, because they are gone, forgotten, defeated by God. And understand that their defeat ended their complete domination of these Canaanite states and these pagan peoples that had ruled over that part of the world for centuries. And in just a matter of 10 years at the most, they had all fallen one by one to the Israelites until nothing was left. And remember, other than that little hiccup we saw at Ai, when Israel kind of got out ahead of God and they had to go back and, and try it again until ultimately they got the victory. But except for that one battle, it has been one defeat for Israel's enemies, one after another. One military disaster right after another as God's divine judgment was finally being executed 
on this wicked people. Right? Understand, each of their cultures were incredibly cruel. Right? Absolutely oppressive to the poor and sexually licentious and wickedly idolatrous and violently brutal. And the Lord had given them a very long time to repent. Right? Israel waited centuries for her inheritance because, as we've said before, it says in Genesis chapter 15 that the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet full. And I think it was Longfellow, right, the, the American Christian poet who wrote this, that though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, and exactness grinds he all. So finally God's patience was fully exhausted with these people, right? The sun had now set on the, and the, the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and all the otherites were completely erased from the world's stage to be remembered really for nothing more than the part that they had once played in the life of God's people. And it's just like those wonderful things that the Lord has completely cleansed from our lives this morning. Those things that are gone and those things that are forgotten and have been wiped out from the record. And notice next in this list of 31 kings that the names of the kings aren't actually even recorded for us. Right? Verse 9, here's the record of the kings from, remember that central campaign from verses 6 through 8. These are the conquered central kings. It says in verse 9, the king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. Okay, so now in verses 10 through 16, this is the southern campaign. Remember from chapter 10. So these are the conquered southern kings. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Debir won. The king of Geder won. The king of Hormah won. The king of Arad won. The king of Libna won. The king of Adalam won. The king of Makedah won. And the king of Bethel won. Now, each of these kings, right, here for the central and the southern Canaan, Canaan along with all those we're going to see next in the north, each of these kings were great and powerful men of their time. They were great, powerful adversaries and yet now they are totally forgotten right their names are not even included here in the record these are men who had their power and they had their prosperity and they ruled over their kingdoms of wickedness they thought they were right there on top of the world until God decided it was time for their judgment and in that moment God knew each one of these men by name. And he destroyed every one of these God-mocking enemies one by one. God tracked them down and he destroyed them. And I think that that in and of itself is an encouragement to us that God will and God can do the very same thing to each one of those kings, kings of the flesh or kings of the past, those kings that stand in the way of our future in our own lives. 
right? Those kings that stand there and kind of mock us and God, those kings that want to come against us and prevent us from having all that it is that God wants to give us, even those kings that try to hide out hidden in the cave deep in our heart. Remember those guys. Remember those kings from the southern campaign back in chapter 9, the five, five fleshly kings, Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. They tried to hide from Joshua in the cave even after their army, armies had been defeated, after their power had really been broken. But what happened to those guys? They got pulled out, they got run through, they got hung up, right? God can take all of those kings who come against us and one day the record will read in your life that there came a day for each and every one of those kings when God did track them down. And one day the record will read in your life that God did defeat and he did destroy each and every one of them. And we have to imagine that most of these kings never thought that they could be beaten by Israel. Most of these enemies likely thought Israel didn't even have a chance until Israel started to really press in and to move ahead. And God responded by giving them that complete victory. And there's no doubt that some of our enemies today probably think the same thing about us. They think they could never be defeated, right? They think that we can't win. But what they apparently don't realize is that they simply cannot beat the power of God. And these first 15 kings of southern Canaan found that out the hard way. And now the list concludes with 31 more kings who learned the very same lesson. These were the kings that were part of that northern confederation. Remember who all came against Israel together and Israel defeated them one by one. So these are the conquered northern kings, verses 17 through 24. The king of Tapua won. The king of Hefer won. The king of Aphek won. The king of Lasharon won. The king of Medon won. The king of Hazor won. The king of Shimron Meron won. The king of Ashva won. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Megiddo won. The king of Kadesh won. The king of Jokniam and Carmel won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The king of the people of Gilgal won. The king of Tirzah won, all the kings 31. So all the kings in this whole chapter, in this whole land, from the far south to the far north, one after another. And as we read through this entire list of them, it really makes this kind of a cumulative impression. Right? Especially if we read them right straight on through, instead of breaking them up the way that I did. So maybe I should read them all again, one by one, just so you get the full, like your eyes are like, no, please, not again. I'm not going to do that, I promise you. As long as you promise me that you get the sense of this cumulative impression that this makes, especially with that number one that follows after the name of each and every one of them. All the way, look at your Bibles from verse 9 all the way down to verse 24. And though it might seem repetitive to us, these verses really read in a pretty exciting way. It's almost as if the audience who was listening to it is counting the cities one by one as they heard the names read out. 
right? Kind of keeping score, as it were, of all the victories as they added up all together, right? Each one of these was a separate city. Each one was a separate battle. Each separate battle was led by a separate opposing king. Again, these were real enemies and real battles. 31 battles that needed to be fought. And in the final record, all 31 kings who were completely destroyed. So again, it doesn't matter if they lived in the mountains or in the plains or in the valley or out by the sea, right? Back in verse 8, mountains, lowlands, slopes, wilderness, they all fell one by one. God gave the victory over every single enemy, simply as his people just faithfully obeyed his word, God was faithful to give them victory until what we end up with is this accumulation of these conquered kings. And this is to say for each one of us, we may fight 31 different battles, but if we're faithful to God, we're going to experience 31 different victories. That's the story of Joshua 12. If we just give him more obedience over more time, he'll be faithful to ultimately give us victory each and every time over the course right, of our lifetime. And as we've seen, we've said over and over through our study of Joshua, every Christian is Israel, right? Taking the promised land. Every Christian life repeats this story of the conquest as we take more and more ground really to possess these promises that were purchased for us by Jesus and are given to us by God. And just like with Israel, same with us, right? The promised land just doesn't drop suddenly into our laps. It takes time, doesn't it? And we need to engage and continue to engage in the fight. But what we learn in this first half of the book of Joshua is that as we do, that God will enable us and he'll equip us and he'll empower us and that he will fulfill in our lives all these promises that he's made. So that when we do take the time to pause and reflect, what we find is that the record of our own lives really starts to resemble this record here in Joshua 12. Right? Life can seem so very ordinary most of the time, can't it? I always say that the difficulty of life in our daily walk with Jesus is that it is just so daily. Right? And sometimes it seems like nothing significant seems to be happening because we're so wrapped up in all of the details of our daily lives, as important as all of those details are. But what happens is that the days pass and then the months pass and then the years pass and we're not conscious or at least we're hardly conscious of the fact that we are day by day taking more and more of the promised land. That all of those promises are becoming more and more a reality in our lives. And we can so easily fail to see this little thing that happened to us or that thing that the Lord did for us or that person that he brought into our lives or this encounter that we had with this person or that person or the way that we were able to serve them in this particular way or in that way. We forget about that one little piece 
of obedience on our part or that act of repentance or that simple sacrifice we made of Christian love or those wonderfully unplanned words where we had an opportunity to witness and to share. But each and every one of those little things, as it were, were just one more step in the battle of the taking of a Debir or of an Agilom or of a Hazor or of a Terza. And we can all too often, we can become completely, completely unaware that our lives are becoming a list of all of these defeated kings. These kings that God has really delivered before us just as we've simply given him our obedience over time. And not necessarily in some sort of a frantic or manic kind of a way, but just as we walk consistently with him in his strength and in his power. And that's why we so desperately need these kind of Joshua 12 breaks in the busyness of our lives, where we can just stop in the course of kind of our Christian experience and we can sit down and just reflect on all those things that have already been conquered in our lives by his grace, right? It was John Newton, right, who authored Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn. He was a slave trader, remember, who was turned preacher. And he wrote this. He said, I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. And so it's so important for us from time to time with a humble heart and a grateful heart just to really survey the years that have gone by, right? Really go through the pages of our memory carefully and recall all of those places where the grace of God has given us victory. And maybe even to actually write down that list of kings that God has defeated in our lives and to take an inventory so that we can look at them and then understand that they've only been defeated by God's grace. None of those kings were defeated in our own strength or on our own part. We realize as we look at the list that he's the one who leads us and he's the one who gives us victory, that he's the one who makes those walls of Jericho fall down. He's the one that makes the sun stand still there in the valley of Agilon so that we can finish the fight. Right? He's the one that defeats the five kings together or even the 15 kings when they come across us all against us all at once. And yes, there may be 31 battles, but you know what? That's his business, isn't it? As we just stop and look, we start to see what our obedience over time has really produced in and through our lives. Now, we're going to close today by taking communion. And as we take communion today, I want us to do it with this list of these battles in mind. And here's the reason. Because the outcome of these battles really makes these battles the most important battles in all of human history. You know, more important than Yorktown or Gettysburg or even Waterloo or the Battle of Hastings or the Battle at Normandy. Because these battles are the battles that brought God's people into the promised land where we know ultimately King David 
would finally subdue Jerusalem, where our Messiah Jesus would ultimately come and would die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And in just that one act, right, 2,000 years ago, Jesus would single-handedly defeat the greatest enemy in the greatest battle that time and eternity has ever known. And all of it he did to fulfill a promise that was made to each one of us, right? Just to provide the possibility of redemption for us. It was a promise made in the counsel of the mind and in the heart of God in eternity past. That's a faithful God. That's a God who's faithful to fulfill each and every promise that he's made. And so even before we take communion, I want us just to take a few moments really to celebrate God's faithfulness in our lives. Really to, to take a, a chance to reflect and even actually maybe to make a list of those conquered kings. So the worship team is going to come up now and they're just going to begin to minister, right? Before we come forward to get the elements to take communion. And as they do, some of the other youth, Pastor Chris, and some of the other youth leaders and some of the youth, um, they're going to come through and they're going to pass out these little bookmarks that we made just to anyone who wants to take one. But the idea is that here on these bookmarks, you're going to see there are some lines where you can actually list some of the kings that the Lord has brought down in your life. Whatever kings those might be, they might be fleshly kings or sinful kings or relational kings, emotional kings, circumstantial or maybe medical kind of kings, kings of fear or kings of anxiety or kings of addiction. Just to take a chance, a, an opportunity to list those things out. You can do it right here and now or you are absolutely welcome to take it home and to do it if you want to, maybe during your devotional time. You can start it here and finish it there. Whatever you choose to do, let me encourage you to take some time, at least to reflect right now on all it is that the Lord has done for you, right? You wanna rehearse his faithfulness to you in your life. And then as you do that, once you hear the team start singing, at that point, do feel free to come forward, pick up the elements for communion, and take them back to your seat. And as we usually do, after you've spent some time with the Lord, you're free to take those uh, on your own. Uh, you don't need to wait for us on the group. But of course, as we do that, we, we do want to contemplate, we want to remember, and we want to celebrate that greatest victory in the greatest battle that Jesus has won for us on our behalf. If you need prayer during this time, I know Pastor Jeff is here and Anne is here. There are other ladies from the women's ministry that are around. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, please don't be afraid to ask for it. We're just gonna take about one song worth uh, and just take some time to really reflect on those defeated kings and then we'll have communion and then we'll have some food, amen?
Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and we do thank you for your faithfulness to each one of us, Lord, uh, through the years, Lord, perhaps even through the decades. Um, Lord, the way that not one promise that you've made us has gone unfulfilled, Lord, or has been broken. And so we want to ask you to help to quicken our hearts, even now to help us to be mindful of those things. Lord, if this, if this card is helpful for some people, I pray that you'd bless that process, Lord, for those who, who don't want to, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to them during this time. Um, Lord, we want this to be a time that honors you and encourages us. And Father, we pray, of course, for our time of communion, that you would bless that as well. Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.